There are three ways that people try and make sense of what, what goes on in this world. Maybe there's more, but three is a good number, so I'll take, I'll take three ways. Um, there's three ways we can try and make sense of what's going on in this world. Uh, way number one is that the world is like, uh, the world's like a runaway train. It, a train is hurling down a track and it doesn't have anyone at the controls. It's just, it's just going somewhere and whatever happens just happens. There, there's no one at the controls. There's no one's guiding the world. There's no one orchestrating what happens. Everything is a purposeless accident because the train's just barreling down and whatever happens, happens. That, that's one way. It's depressing. That's one way. Uh, another way is uh, that uh, everything that happens is, is sort of designed by by fate um that there's an impersonal uncaring disinterested and faceless engineer who's at the controls of the train we don't know him we can't see him we can't try and understand him in any way uh fate or or destiny faceless and impersonal guy at the controls uh, a third way is the Christian way, where you have you do have someone at the controls, like the second option, but the third option is the person at the controls here in the Christian story of the controls of this train is a good engineer. An engineer is the guy who drives the train. Don't ask me why, but I looked it up. Is the engineer. It's a good engineer. The train is under his control. Uh, you can see this guy. You can see the controller. You can know him. You can love him. You can trust him. And he makes himself available to everyone who wants to know him. That's the Christian answer. There is a good controller at the wheel of this train taking it somewhere and taking it surely and purposely through the valleys, through the mountains, through the passes, to a destination. Three ways to look at this world. And this morning, we're going to talk about how the third way is the way that this world works. God is the good conductor, the good, um, the good controller who's taking us somewhere and taking us in a good way, in a way you can trust. So this morning, what I want you to know, what I think God would have us to know, is that you, your life and your circumstances are not an accident and aren't the result of an uncaring and impersonal fate or destiny. Whatever is going on in your life, as we look at a lot of things about to happen in Paul's life, uh, God knows, he sees, he cares, and God is driving the train that is your life, that's my life, that's all of our lives. Uh, one life touches so many others, and the confluence of all these events and circumstances and actions, good and bad, molding together, working together in this world, are bringing God's story closer to the finish line. The things that happen to us... Um, shape us so that we can love him more and love him better. The things um, that happen to outsiders are designed to push them to think about God's promises in light of the world's promises, like what we read this morning from, uh, from the psalm. So today, we're going to see all of this in Paul's action-packed story in Acts 27 on his voyage from Italy, from, sorry, his voyage from Caesarea to Malta, where our story will end today. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts 27, verse 1 through 28, verse 10. We're going to go through the text pretty quickly, and then we'll talk about God as the good controller. And hopefully, as you think about your life, 
that will help us be encouraged that what is happening in your life or has happened, the things that have brought you to who you are now, where you are now, it's not a cosmic accident. It's God orchestrating and moving you the way he wants things to go. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We love you. We thank you for your word. Speak to us through your word this morning. We pray and help us, those of us who are struggling, those of us who have uh, things weighing on our minds, circumstances, life situations, life itself. Uh, give us confidence that you are moving and directing, shepherding this train and your people toward a goal that's good and holy that we can trust and have confidence in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's going to Italy. He appealed to Rome. Fest, he talked to Festus. He said, I don't want to be tried here. I want to be tried in Rome. I'm a Roman citizen. Festus said, well then, you'll have it. Chapter 27, verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. This is a long trip. This map is supposed to show you. Paul is in Caesarea, which is down here. He's going to go all the way eventually to Rome, which is up there. Our story today will be in the Mediterranean here um, from... Um, Caesarea to Malta, which is just off the coast, just off. It's south of, of Sicily. And that's where we're going to go. Um, Paul is sailing for Italy. So our, our, our message today is about how God controls the world. I want you to think about all the things that could have gone so many different ways. Think of all the things that had to have happened for Paul to be in the position he's in. Uh, Paul could have chosen not to go to Jerusalem. If you remember in Acts 21, in, in Acts uh, 19 and 20, everyone was saying, maybe you shouldn't go maybe you should stay. I probably wouldn't have gone. I would have found some very good Christian reason to say, I think God needs me here. You know, uh, he could have chosen not to go, but he chose to go. He could have chosen, once he got there, he could have chosen not to go to the temple that day, but he did. Pure accident, cosmic coincidence, and he went that day because James was pressuring him because James was dealing with pressure from people in his congregation who were hardcore uh, Judaizers. There's different kinds of Christians. Some people have hang-ups here or there. James dealing with people who had hang-ups here, and he's pressuring Paul, listen, do the Nazarite vow thing and go with these guys to the temple this day and so, I can, so we can have some, so I can take, help make these people happy. All these things had to come together in a precise way for things to happen like they happen, just like your life. All the things that have happened to put you where you are now, all the things that could have gone a different way, but they didn't. What if there hadn't, what if they hadn't decided to have a plot to kill Paul? They wouldn't have speared him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. What if Paul's nephew had not heard of the plot and they'd killed him? What if the centurion who received news from Paul's nephew was an idiot and decided, I'm not going to get the guy out of here. I'll just put 10 people outside his cell instead. Because, you know, some people are not the smartest, not the sharpest knives in the drawer. I hope that's not a revelation to you, right? Some people are good. Some people are not so good. Uh, the centurion was a wise person. He's like, we need to get this guy out of here. What if he hadn't been? What if Paul had offered Felix a bribe? 
Felix was waiting for two years for a bribe. He probably would have let him go. What if Paul had said, you know, we can do this, but he didn't. What if Paul had not appealed to Rome? What if Festus had managed to persuade Paul, listen, we don't need to go through all of that. Let's just handle this in Jerusalem. All of these things all combining together at specific times and places and ways to make this situation, this journey happen. But it could have gone a million different ways. Think of all the twists and turns in your life where things could have gone different ways. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the province, uh, along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. They're planning to hop along the coast until they get to the get to open water. The next day, we landed at Sidon, which is just up the coast, just skipping along the coast. So here they are, and Julius, in kindness to Paul allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. It's amazing how often centurions in the scriptures are actually nice people. Isn't that amazing? Can you think of a centurion? Well, the guy, even the guy who killed Jesus believed he was the son of God afterwards. So, okay, forget the guy who killed Jesus. But I mean, centurions are, they, they seem to be nice, understanding people in the, in, in the scriptures. And Paul is with, um, Paul, uh, Luke and Aristarchus are with Paul because we keeps being used. Luke is there. He's with him. He's traveling with Paul to Rome. He lets him get off in Sidon and meet with the Christians there, and they probably give him provisions and, and stuff. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. They left from Sidon. They go off to the side of Cyprus, and they're hugging the coast again, and they're heading for Myra. When we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia, which is here. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis when the wind did not allow us Ah, uh, where is it? When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. This is Crete. This is the harbor where they show up. This is the harbor of Fair Havens. They get to Crete and now they have to make a decision. Are they going to stay there for the winter or are they going to push on? Because the winter... Three, three or four months in the winter, late fall th through winter, are very dangerous because of heavy winds and it's like the trade routes are basically closed. Should they try and push on to a better harbor or just stay here for the winter and try again in the spring? So they're pretty much stuck. So they're going to have a discussion of whether they should stay in this harbor or whether it'd be better to go to a different harbor on the island of Crete. Verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. So it's getting late in the season. So Paul warned them, verse 10, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and is bring great loss to ship and cargo into our lives also. Paul's been shipwrecked three times. He's been traveling for 20 years back and forth across the Mediterranean by land and by sea. So Paul's an experienced traveler, and his advice, for what it's worth, apparently it's not worth very much, is 
I think we need to just stay. I don't think we need to push on any further. It's uh, bad things will happen. It's like when you're traveling on a long road trip and you stop somewhere and you're like, should we stay here or should we just go two more hours here? And you're like, eh, probably best to stay. Paul's like, it's best to stay. But, verse 11, this is a grain-carrying ship. They're just, they, they're just passengers on the ship. But because it's, a, it's, it's Roman centurion and armed soldiers there leading prisoners out, they have veto power over where, they basically almost commandeered the ship, so to speak, um, to take them on their way. So verse 11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. The owner of the ship owns the ship and, all the, and is going to make money from all the grain it's carrying. He wants, the sooner they get the ship into port, the, the further along they get the ship before winter hits, the sooner they'll be able to get the ship to port in the spring, the sooner he makes money. He wants to push on. And the centurion's like, I guess I'll, I'll listen to them. I mean, they know what they're doing. Centurion's not a sailor. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix in winter there. This is a harbor just up the three hours, 41 minutes by car, as your screen says, according to Google Maps, up the road uh, with better facilities. So like, we're going to push on to better facilities. So for three months, we have a better place to hang out because the other place is smaller. Paul says, not a good idea. They decide to go for it. Verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. Let's do this. Just scoot along the coast and uh, go to the better harbor. We'll hang out there for the winter. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. And that's exactly why ships stop in the winter and don't ply the trade routes because this happens but they thought they could make it the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind so we gave way to it and were driven along so they 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 have no choice but to just let the wind carry them wherever it's going which is not where they're trying it's blowing them out to the open sea as we passed to the lee of a small island called kada which is here the lee means they're passing uh, to the sheltered side. So the wind is blowing, the wind is blowing this way. And they're, they're trying to go along the coast, but they're being blown out this way. And they're passing by, my pulpit's in the way for poor Tim, but they're passing by this island down here. As we passed to the lee of the small island called Kada, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. They trailed out a boat behind the ship so it could be deployed easily if they needed it. But the thing's about to be smashed to pieces, so they haul it in. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, which was a common tactic. I mean, the, the ship's being bashed everywhere, so they have cables that they run under the ship to basically hold the, to hold the thing, help hold the thing together in really horrible seas. Then they, they passed ropes on the ship to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, which is in northern Africa. The wind is blowing so much, they fear they're just going to be driven endlessly and get smashed up on the rocks in, in North Africa. Um, pretty bad weather. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. The sea anchor, they, they lower the anchor and just 
So the ship is dragging and just sort of going along with the with the flow, but slowly because it's dragging its anchor behind it. So they're they're trying to like put a break on this situation, basically. Verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm, they're taking on water, that the next day they begin to throw the cargo overboard. It's sodden, water's in the hold, throw stuff overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. There is no GPS. You can't see, you can't see the stars. You don't know where you are. They have no idea where they're going. For days on end, who knows where they are? They can't take a star sighting. They can't take a sun sighting. They can't do anything. Verse 21, after they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because one of you, not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. That is why everything that's going to happen is happening. God has a goal. He's moving his story somewhere. And he's going to orchestrate events in and through decisions that we make that we're not even aware, we're not even aware of what's going on behind our decisions. God will orchestrate and move and use our decisions to get what he wants done. There is a, there, there, there is a controller at the wheel of the train that is this world. And he's taking it somewhere. Remember the three options. Either there's no one at the controls and everything's an accident. You're an accident. Your wife is an accident. Your husband's an accident. Your children are accidents. Everything you have and everything you are is just an accident and means nothing because it's all random. Or there's someone who's good and loving and trustworthy at the controls. Paul says that person is the Christian God, the one true God. You're a Christian. You need to believe that too. Not just in your head, but in real life as we deal with real things. You must stand child before Caesar. Have you asked God to tell you the reason for your troubles or to help you cope through the troubles? Doesn't mean you're not, doesn't mean we're not responsible for the mess we get ourselves in, but it also means that it's not outside of God's control either. So either we're going to go to the controller to ask us how to fix ourselves and get on the track he has for us, or we act like there is no controller and it's all random. It's all purposeless. Your suffering is meaningless. Things that happen to you are meaningless. There's no purpose. There's no aim. There's no goal. It's just random, pointless. Is that true? The scripture says, no, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. <laughs> So Paul says, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Do you have faith that God has a plan that will turn out the way he wants? And if you say that, and not just say it, but really believe it, it'll give shape to why things happen to you and what you should think about them. What you should think about what happens to you. Is there a controller who's steering the train or not? 
And if the controller is God and he's good and loving and holy, then can you trust the controller or not? And I know when real life happens, things get, it's not always that simple, but it is fundamentally that simple. It's just hard to, hard to take in sometimes. Is there a purpose for what happens in your life or not? Is your life and the circumstances that make up your life an accident with no meaning, or is God given meaning? Do you have meaning? Paul says, nevertheless, we must run up against, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, they're being driven all over the open sea. They're worried they're going to be driven to the coast and be smashed on North Africa. But they're, they're just wander, being blown all over the place in the middle of the, middle of the Mediterranean. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They hear waves crashing against rocks. Can't see anything. GPS is not working. Uh, so they, they, but they sense it. Verse 28, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Great. So they wait a little bit and take a sounding again. 90 feet. Oops, they're getting closer to land. Who knows when the ship's going to crash onto some rocks like these. This is actually the rocks, rocks in Malta that they would have crashed up on. Um, but they can't see anything. It's dark. And the wind's blowing everywhere, driving them along, out of control. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. This is what they're rolling up against. This is Malta. Malta is just south of Sicily. Paul's eventually going to land here after they go to Malta and go through Syracuse and up there. There's a great Chinese restaurant in Syracuse. <laughs> we were stationed here, and we used to drive down there all the time. There's a great Chinese restaurant right in the port. I, it's not written in here, but I hope Julius let Paul stop off there because it was really great. It's the best Chinese food I've ever had in Syracuse. But that's for next week, not this week. So I'll tell you about that next week. Um, Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, prayed for, you know, put more drag on the ship. Hopefully the light comes and we can sort of avoid something or before we just crash. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the sailors are like, we're all going to die. Let's just get out of here and we'll row to shore, wherever that is. They're going to abandon everyone to their fate. There's no trained nautical folks on board. And Paul says, Paul senses they're about to do that. They're pretending, oh, we have to, we have to, we're going to let anchors down in the, in, the, in, in the front too. And Paul's like, no, I know what you're up to. Verse 32 says, so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. It probably wouldn't have been a good idea to just order the sailors back instead of just cutting the lifeboat away before they can lower it. But whatever, um, they, they get to stay. Uh, the sailors are kept on board. This is Malta, um, according to Google Maps. Um, Malta is still there, obviously. I'll show you the bay where they uh, run aground in a moment. Just before dawn, verse 33, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense that have gone without food. Obviously, you can't cook anything. Water is in the hold. Terrible weather. Probably don't feel like eating. Uh, you haven't eaten anything, he said. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Reminding them, 
God will protect you. There is a controller driving this train. He told me, you all will be protected if you do what, I, if you do what I'm telling you. <coughs> After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, then he broke bread and began to eat. It sounds like the Lord's Supper, the way it's took it, prayed, broke the bread. Uh, there's no cup or anything, but it's, it's just, it's a meal on board. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. At this point, they seem to trust Paul more um, as someone who they should probably listen to because he has a lot of, he's been traveling for 20 years back and forth across the Mediterranean. And his God clearly has, his God clearly is, um, is someone who they should listen to. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land. This is St. Paul's Bay. It's literally called St. Paul's Bay because this is where they ran aground. This is St. Paul's Shoals where the ship ran aground somewhere over here and they had to swim into the bay. Um, so this is quite literally where he, where he ran aground in Malta. So they don't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. They didn't realize that there's shoals here right at the at places at the entrance where the ship's going to run aground before they get to the sandy beach. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Anchors are gone, so the ship can't even go out in open sea anymore with any certainty it can, it can stop or, or anything. So they're like, Cut the anchors, put up the sail they have left, and just head for the beach. They plan to just crash right on the beach and get off the ship. It's now or never. But the ship struck a sandbar here in the bay and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But, and here's another circumstance, circumstance. The centurion, Julius, wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. What train of circumstances had to have come about to make this centurion a kind and decent guy? Because Paul and Luke could have died right here. But, is it an accident that Julius is a decent and kind man who decided to spare Paul's life so everyone was spared. That's why we're reading this right now, because Luke lived. What, how many circumstances had to come and coalesce to make everything happen as it happens? How many circumstances have to coalesce in your life to make what it is what it is? Some of them are your bad choices. Some of them are your good choices. Uh, they're all God's choices at the same time in a way that's difficult to fathom, but... Is your life an accident? Or is there a controller guiding your life toward a desired end? He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to the land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And in this way, how many people reach safety? In verse 44, everybody, everybody reached. And Luke is an eyewitness because he was there. He saw it. He swam to shore or grabbed a piece of wood or something and, and, and swam in using it as a flotation device, but he was there. 
Once, chapter 28, once safely on shore, we found that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. If Paul had not been a kind Christian man, the snake wouldn't have bitten him. Couldn't he have just like sat back and said, let someone else start the fire? I mean, it's been a, it's been a really bad two and a half weeks, right? I mean, why does he have to get up and gather wood to start the fire? But he's just such a nice person. He actually helps the natives gather fire for these 200 some odd people who staggered up like drowned rats on the shore. If Paul hadn't been such a Christian man, the snake wouldn't have bit him. The viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. So the natives thought the snake was poisonous, and they're expecting him to die. They would know if the snake was poisonous. There aren't any poisonous snakes there now, because it's a hugely populated island, but there used to be. 28, chapter 28, verse 5. Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. And all of what's about to happen was triggered because Paul was a nice guy, a nice Christian man who decided to help gather firewood. And if he hadn't helped gather firewood, none of what's about to happen Whatever have happened on Malta. Coincidence, right? It's a pure coincidence. There's no one behind this whatsoever. It's just a happy accident. You watch Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting. I used to watch him when I was a kid. He talked about happy little accidents all the time when he'd mess up a painting. Is that what life is? A bunch of happy and unhappy accidents? Or is there a benevolent, good, and holy controller at the controls? Chapter 28, verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. One act of simple Christian kindness produced the snake which bit him, which produced people being drawn to listen to him because he didn't die when the snake bit him, which produced him being able to heal multitudes of people on the island and likely give them the gospel at the same time. One simple act of Christian kindness might produce an unbelievable amount of fruit even if you can't see it. One life touches so many others. I know I'm actually paraphrasing from the Angel Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, but the Angel Clarence was right. Um, one life does touch so many others, and things you do have ripple effects like ripples in a pond that go and expand outward and touch things you can't even see or imagine. And behind all of those ripples and all of those actions that we freely do is God moving, directing, shepherding, and driving the train that is this life to the place he wants it to go. Verse 10, they honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. We'll pick up their adventure next week.
What are you supposed to do with this passage? Are you supposed to say, next time I'm on a sailing ship going from Caesarea to Malta, I will do what Paul did? Is that what you're supposed to take away from this? What are you supposed to do with this? When you're dealing with a passage that doesn't have a do this aspect to it, what you should do is you should step back and say, you read a story, an account. You're supposed to, you should step back and say, what is God doing with what he's showing us here? What is God showing us that we need to learn from this passage? I believe he's showing us that we need to trust and rely on our heavenly father which isn't a big revelation, is it? But as we think about this passage, that's what it's showing us. Do we trust that he's in control and that he has an an end goal that he's driving us toward, or do we not? As I said at the beginning of the sermon, you have three choices about what happens in your life. Option number one, your life is a series of random and unplanned accidents. Whatever happens, happens. There's no point to it, it just is. Option two, your life is a result of fate that you don't know, that you can't see, that you can't experience, that you can't love or touch or see. You're a puppet on the end of a string controlled by this faceless destiny of some sort. Or option number three, the real option, the good controller, God, is behind the wheel of the train that is this life and he knows what he's doing. God is the good engineer at the wheel of the train. He sees, he knows, he cares, and whatever is happening in your life, he is shepherding you and this world along toward the goal that he laid out at the beginning, the Genesis was supposed to be about. Kingdom community where we love one another and we're in perfect relationship with him. That's what he's moving toward. That's what he's gathering people into the family for. To be in a relationship with him, in a community with him, like it was supposed to have been in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So when you think about this, God being in charge, yet us making decisions, you have to ask yourself two questions. One is, does Scripture give us the impression that we're supposed to just laze around and eat ice cream because God is in charge? He's in charge. Whatever happens is going to happen. So I can just sit here and I'll just let it happen to me. Is that, is that what's, if you, if you zoom out and just think about Scripture, is that the picture that God paints for us? God's in charge, so just sit back and enjoy the ride of life. Is that what Scripture gives us? Scripture, no. Scripture over and over says we need to discipline ourselves for godliness. We need to put off the old person and we need to put on the new person. Jesus is genuinely frustrated because people don't accept him. Uh, Paul says we won't see the kingdom of God until we endure a lot of tribulation, a lot of persecution. Peter said we need to be a light among the nations. Paul Our passage, all the circumstances, all the things, all the decisions, they all had to combine together in a very unique way, gel together. The circumstances and decisions all had to gel together to bring him to Malta, which I outlined at the beginning. So truth number one that we need to remember as we think about God being the controller on this train. Your life, number one, is a result of choices that you've made and choices other people make that impact you. You make choices and people do things to you. 
Your cho our choices do matter. We have to make good choices in this life. That's truth number one. Our choices do matter. So we're not just supposed to sit around and say, God's at the wheel. Jesus has the wheel so I can just hang out and eat the potato chips and rest. That's not true. Your choices do matter. Although the scripture, he tells us to act this way. Do this. Love me more. Choose me instead of this. But on the opposite hand, is God, when you think about the scripture, is God just a spectator who just watches the world from the outside, like someone at a zoo watching a tiger or watching an animal through glass? Oh, I see him. He's going that way. I better not do that. Oh, it sucks. I mean, is that, is that the way God is? He just watches like a spectator, just watching? No. All of this happened because God wanted Paul to go to Rome. All of chapter 27 and 28 happened because God wants Paul to get to Rome. God is involved. He's involved in what happens. Jesus had to be rejected and crucified. That doesn't mean that people didn't make decisions to accept or reject him. But what was God's plan was going to come to pass. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be crucified. The Assyrians had to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. So truth number two, your life, your choices do matter, but number two is your life is also a result of choices that God has made that shape and impact the choices you and other people make. James decided to throw the people in his congregation a bone and begged Paul to go to the temple that day. Jews from Asia who hated Paul happened to be at the temple that day, that hour, and they saw him. What if he'd gone three hours later instead? Felix wanted a bribe so it could be, so the whole process could be delayed. The Jewish leaders engaged in plots to kill Paul so that he would desire to escape and get to Rome. Paul's negative travel experiences for 20 years before all came together to the advice he gave them on the voyage, which made the centurion trust him, which made the centurion not kill him when they shipwrecked off the coast of Malta. Julius's character as a decent and intelligent man Made it, meant that he kept Paul alive instead of having him killed. Paul's kindness resulted in the snake biting him, which resulted in him healing islanders from all over the island of Malta. Not an accident. This means, as we sum up here, your life is not an accident. Your life isn't an accident. You aren't an accident. None of it's an accident. So I want to leave you something with something more personal than this philosophical thing floating around in your mind. And it's this. If you're a Christian, then God is your heavenly father. Why does God reveal himself as a father? So we can be distant, far away, aloof, ice cold. When you think of what a father should be, why do you think God revealed himself to us as our heavenly father? Because he, if you're a Christian, God is your heavenly father. That means he wants to take care of you because you're one of his children. You've been adopted as his son or daughter. Jesus is your brother, Hebrews 2.11. And because he's a heavenly father and he's a good father, his aim and his goal and his burden is to take care of you. And if that's true, then what does that mean about why things happen in your life? 
Is the controller missing in action? Is the controller faceless, nameless, impersonal, distant? This faceless cipher? Or is the controller your heavenly father? And because he's the best father, he cares about you. He helps you. He wants, to, he wants the best for you. So what does that have to do with anything? If you're a Christian, then God is steering your life, shepherding it along as part of his story. It means you're not a pawn, you're not a chess piece, you're not a nothing, you're not a meaningless entry on a divine spreadsheet. He chose you. If you're a Christian, he chose you, he rescued you, and he sent his son to die for you to make you one of his children. And that means you're not a dog tied to a cart, being dragged unwittingly along by fate. You've seen the, how the Grinch stole Christmas? The Grinch's poor dog. He just like makes the dog do all sorts of horrible things. The dog has no say in it. He just whips the dog when he's on the sleigh to go faster. He ties horns to him. He dresses him. He does all sorts of horrible things to the poor dog. I feel sorry for the dog. He's just a tool that the Grinch uses. There's no love there. Maybe when his heart became ten sizes too big, maybe there was love. But there's no love before. You are not the dog that the Grinch just whips uh, along the course of destiny. If God, your Heavenly Father, he cares for you in a way that the Grinch did not care for his dog. cares about you. He loves you. So what happens to you is not arbitrary, capricious, meaningless, foolish, none of it. Good fathers don't act like that to their children, and God is the best father. So why isn't my life better? You might ask. Why is my life not good right now? Why is my life not good? Little children understand. Little children don't know why their parents do what they do. Why can't I have more candy? Why do I have to go to bed early? Why do I have to stay away from that friend? He's not so bad. We think that. Little kids think that, but they can only see from their perspective, which is pretty limited. The friend's nice. The candy tastes good. Going to bed early sucks. Why do I have to do it? They don't understand it because they view fairness from their perspective. We know the right way is the parent's perspective because we can see the bigger picture and we know that friend's not good. We know we don't want to take you to the dentist to fill the cavity, so you're not going to get the bag of Jolly Ranchers. And we know you do need to go to bed early or you become a terrorist. Okay, It's better. Trust us. We know. We, as the little children here, we can't see the bigger picture for why things happen. But if God is the best father, then he knows what he's doing. In Psalm 23, Psalm 23 doesn't say, Yea, though I never ever see darkness and my life is great. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. As I go through difficult times, you're with me. It doesn't say if you're a Christian, everything's perfect in your life. That's a lie. We need to trust and rely on our Heavenly Father. Do we believe he's at the controls of this train that is this world that is your life or not? Your life is not an accident. Your circumstances aren't an accident. You aren't an accident. You do things. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Other people do things to us or that impact us. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not good. And God has a plan for all of these circumstances, all of these events, all of these actions to combine together to direct things where he wants them to go, your life is not an accident. What are you supposed to do about this? This is what I would suggest. 
to pray, if you believe this is true, if you believe God is in control, then to pray something like this, something like this. Help me to know your purpose for my life. What are you doing in my life? What, what am I supposed to be doing if I'm supposed to offer myself as a living sacrifice to you? What is it you want me to do? We don't all have to go to, uh, go to Antarctica and minister to penguins, you know, in horrible conditions. We have things to do right here. Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I offer myself to you? Even amidst and especially through good and bad circumstances, especially through the messiness of life. And how, please lead me to embrace this with joy. What do you want me to do? Even in bad circumstances, and help me to embrace it with joy. If you believe God is the good controller driving this train somewhere, and if you're one of his children, and if you believe that he's the best father, that he's your heavenly father, then you should pray and ask God, show me what you want from me, show me how I can offer myself to you, and help me to embrace that with joy, even and especially in terrible, difficult, challenging circumstances. Your life is not an accident. Now there was Paul's shipwreck on Malta and all the circumstances that brought him there nor are all the circumstances that have brought you to where you are right now and that are going to bring you to where you'll be in five years and ten years. Your life isn't an accident. Let's live like that and trust and rely on our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in your Son's name. Help us to love you. Help us to know you. Help us to believe that you are the controller who's steering this train of life, bringing it to where you want it to go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.